Hey, Rockheads, you might not know about Code on the Beach, a nonprofit, family friendly conference happening this August 8th through the 10th in Atlantic Beach, Florida. Lots of mobile, data, and cloud topics at the intermediate and advanced level delivered by industry heavyweights like John Papa, Nick Molnar, David Neal, Charles Petzold, Greg Young, and more. And .NET Rocks fans can enjoy a $50 discount by entering the code Rocks. that's D-O-T-N-E-T-R-O-C-K-S, at codeonthebeach.com. .NET Rocks, episode 1007, with guests Robert Verding, Stephen Sanderson, Venkat Subramaniam, and Anthony Eden. Recorded Friday, June 6th, 2014. It's .NET Rocks! It's amazing how they can get 40,000 people in a little theater like this. It's not that little. This is a big arena. This is I, the Oslo Spectrum. I do, yeah, I do like the venue, and you know, you know you're amongst the Vikings, don't you? Oh, God, yeah. They belted out. But you know what? They're such a peaceful people now because they got all that violence out of their system hundreds of years ago. So <laughs> They put it in museums. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so great to be here in Oslo, Norway, Yay! at the NDC, and uh, we are, we have a great panel for you. So, uh, without any further ado, let's roll that crazy music for the segment we call "Better Know a Framework." <laughs> All right, buddy, what do you got? All right, I'm gonna. Um, share a, a website and a book and a podcast that is one of my favorite podcasts that I listen to. Oh. It's Freakonomics. Anybody familiar with Freakonomics? Oh, absolutely. All right. Well, a, a few people, but the rest of you, you're in for a treat. This is Freakonomics. Freak O with an O-nomics, not Freaka, because I made that mistake. I oh, couldn't find I... it in the podcast directory, Freakonomics. No, like economics, but Freakonomics. Uh, Stephen Levitt, who's from the uh, University of Chicago, He's economic school uh, there, a great economist, and he does this, uh, written up several books. But these guys have um, done research into things that we discuss a lot yeah. on this show and in this community. And in this last book, Think Like a Freak, a lot of the topics they touched on are things that we've talked about in this community in the last year or so. And it's just amazing how they've actually done the research to and found stories that support the kind of stuff that we're talking about. Okay, as opposed to us who just make it up. Yeah, we just make it up. That's, yeah. But, you know, we, we have... Because, we, you know, community. 55% of all stats are made up. <laughs> <laughs> and the other 60. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so what's really cool about this book, um, uh, Think Like a Freak, is broken down into different sections. And one of them is Think Like a Child, but another one, and we'll talk about that in a minute, um, the sort of the wisdom of coming at a problem with, uh, you know, with just sort of a completely open mind and no sort of pre pretense about what's going to happen. And this is why children are smarter at figuring things out. And they talk about children not being able to be fooled by magicians a lot easier than adults. Adults are easily fooled by magicians. Um, but another one is, I don't know, being the three hardest words in the English language. Oh, yeah, we've talked about that before. And especially in this business, it's very difficult to say, 
I don't know, especially, you know, when you're supposed to be an expert on something and somebody asks you, how do you do this? Or what's, what's the answer to this technical problem? Uh, you know, the correct answer when you don't know is, as I don't know. And again, with children, this is great. They did this, um, study where they asked kids impossible questions. Like, you know, what does purple sound like? That's a good one. You know? And they would say, um, you know, and they would make up an answer right. all the time. And they would always say, I don't know. It's, it's okay to say, I don't know. They'd never say, I don't know. But not just with kids. They did studies where um, uh, it actually cost a major retailer billions of dollars in ad revenue because they didn't want to look at, to do an economic analysis of uh, studies that would prove that the ad money they were already spending was effective or ineffective. Right. Because they didn't want to not look like they knew what they were doing. Yeah. Because if they came to the boss and said, we want to do the study to see if we're actually idiots or not, they would be fired. <laughs> so they, the easy, it would be easier to spend billions of dollars on ineffective, possibly ineffective advertising. Uh, just fascinating read. So I encourage people to pick up the book, Think Like a Freak, and uh, listen to the podcast, uh, Freakonomics Radio or Freakonomics.com. That's my better known framework. Awesome. So who's talking to us, Mr. Campbell? So I reached back in the archives a bit and I grabbed a comment from show 677. Yeah. And that's the one we did here in Nor the Norwegian Developers Conference three years ago on a mobile development panel. Oh, wow. Uh, three yeah, years ago. That was three years ago. Yeah. The, the, the panel was uh, uh, Chris Hardy and um, uh, Bruce Lawson, uh, Jonas Folisso, and uh, Nero Balkan. But this particular comment is a little broader reach, actually, and I thought it was really appropriate for where we're going with the panel today. It's from Jeff Ammons. And Jeff says, uh, one comment on the, on the gist of the conversation, and I can't remember the exact quote, by Carl and Richard, was regarding consumer tech versus enterprise tech. Mm. Don't forget that DOS PCs were brought, sometimes clandestinely, into the office because people wanted to run Lotus 1, 2, 3. Right. You know, that was the motivation that you didn't always, people didn't necessarily know what to do with these machines and not every company had them, you brought them in yourself. That's right. By the rationale that enterprises lead and users follow, companies would still all be using mainframes and mini computers. Mm. This is not a quote, and I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, I just can't remember the exact quotes about the iPad in particular. Now, I think he's referring to the mention I had doing in the work I've done with enterprises where the CTO shows up with an iPad and says, yeah. I'll be using this now. Right, yeah. And the IT guy can't argue with him. That's his boss's boss's boss, right? right? So he just has to sort of figure it out. Executives enamored with the iPad and are finding uses for them do not surprise me. No amount of IT rigor will trump the infatuated CEO. If he wants an iPad app, he'll get it. Both Microsoft with Windows 8 and Hewlett Packard with WebOS are likely to have strong offerings in the tablet side. Now, this is three years ago, you know, when WebOS yeah, was still going right. to be a thing. That's right. So, yeah. you know, don't think badly about Jeff about no, this. No. He was, this was at the time. Put it in place. By this time next year, they'll be more tailored to the enterprise than the iPad. But I wonder how they will fare against a competitor who has won the hearts and minds of folks with checkbooks. Hmm. You like it? Yeah. It's an interesting set of thinking, right? It's just the reality is users, you know, the regular run of the people have always brought them devices that would help them get their work done in whether they were allowed to or not. Right. And it's not just CEOs. It's everybody. So it's a it's an important part of the mobile conversation, but I think it's also an important part in this overall conversation uh, that we want to have today around P 
people trying to use technology successfully and what motivates us to actually build software. Right. But let me finish up here with by saying, Jeff, thanks so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on any of our mobile apps. We've got them for iOS, Android, Windows Phone 7 and 8, and Windows 8. And those apps are built by Diatom Enterprises. Who'd love to build you an app? Just go to DiatomEnterprises.com. And that brings us to our esteemed panelists. I'm going to let them introduce themselves. Uh, you guys who have been here at NDC know them, but I'm going to let the uh, listeners be introduced to them right now, starting with you on the end, Anthony. So I'm Anthony Eden. I am the founder and creator of DN Simple, and I've been a software developer since uh, 95, writing in all kinds of languages, Go, Erlang, Java, all kinds of things. And DN Simple is? DN Simple is a domain registrar and DNS provider designed for developers. Okay. And people who like software that doesn't suck. Very good. Not that I'm biased. Well <laughs> said. Venkat. Venkat Subramaniam. I uh, am a consultant, uh, programmer, uh, Polyglot programmer. I also part-time at uh, University of Houston. Hi there. I'm Steve Sanderson, and I'm a web developer. I currently work for Microsoft and uh, just do all kinds of uh, full-stack web development. And uh, I'm also responsible for starting the Knockout JS project a few years ago. Way back when, and we love Knockout, Steve. Still love it. Very good. Yep. Sir Robert. Okay, I'm Robert Birding. Um, I am one of the initial developers, designers of the language Erlang. Um, work quite a lot with that. I now work for Erlang Solutions. Do training consulting. I do mainly training around Erlang. That's Erlang, folks, if you didn't understand. The, not Alan, or just because I didn't understand the accent as well. Well, that's the but Swedish pronunciation. That's the Swedish. Erlang, right? It's, Erlang. it's where it came from. Yeah. yeah. We're saying it wrong. He's yeah. saying it right. Yeah. So yeah. there's some serious rock stars on our panel here. Give it up for them. But when Richard and I were talking about putting together this panel, it, not just the, the whole, you know, the fame and stuff, but they all come from different places in software and different, uh, you know, uh, different places, but they have different motivations. And we had this great discussion about why do we write software? What is our motivation for writing software? What are we serving? Are we serving our companies? Are we serving the problem, uh, a particular problem? Has the software lived out its usefulness as a product? Are we serving a product? Uh, are we serving ourselves because we need to write code? Um, what what are those motivations? It's probably a mix of those things, but you know what 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 motivates us? Anthony, I I'm a big fan of DN Simple. I think I made that plain. Uh, you talk a bit about your motivations on how you design that software because it seems like it has the fewest number of buttons possible. Sure. Um, so the the experience that I had back when, before I started was using other companies to register domain names. And it, it, quite frankly, was really frustrating because there were a lot of steps. I felt like I was getting hit up all the time to buy additional things. And I thought to myself, and I'd done this for years and years, and I thought to myself, um, what would I, as a customer, really, really want from this experience? What's the simplest thing that I can get from this experience? And really, that was what sort of started the design of the system, the design of the interface, and everything else around it. It was really the idea of taking away everything that you don't care about, you as the customer, and then focusing on only the things that you need to do to get the job done. But how in the world would you make money not constantly trying to deceive me to click on things I don't <laughs> want? 
not surprisingly, if you treat customers well, they tend to buy things and then share that information with their friends. And it's really unfortunate that companies, as they grow, feel the need to extort rather than to sort of build up their customers and really understand their customers and support them. So, I mean, my goal has always been put myself in my customer's shoes. Imagine how much pain they feel when they have to do this stuff and then try to take that pain away. I also think maybe the size of your business is uh, a bit different. I mean, the other company that we clearly are talking about, and I don't want to name names, but they rhyme with Slow Patty. Um, no, yeah, this size, they're significantly larger. They're significantly Most, larger. Yeah, many of the companies are, and absolutely being, to a, feed. being a small business is helpful. It helps us because... Uh, first of all, the, we always, I built it up being uh, the idea of being uh, bootstrapped and uh, self-sustainable. And that means that you get to make decisions that aren't driven by profit only. And I think that's a really good thing for everyone around you, for your customers, your team, for your partners, because you can, you can build things for the, for the better of everyone rather than just focusing on building things to make sure that you meet a particular profit goal or things like that. Absolutely. And you guys want to chime in about motivation? Well, I, I want to kind of uh, uh, carry on with that conversation. I think that's very important to uh, keep in mind. I, I don't believe that popularity or volume is a designing factor, uh, though it could be in some cases. But but if you really look at it, uh, when when you have a customer base that wants to come back to you because of the quality you provide and how productive you make them, that makes a big difference. And a lot of times... Just because people are using a product doesn't mean they actually do it for a good reason. It could be a captive audience. It could be something forced upon by a larger company or environment. So I think, uh, you know, what we derive from developing a great product or creating a value can be very different motivation than a big company with a profit margin as a motivation. Right. So I think that's very important to keep in mind. There's an awful lot of internal applications I've worked with enterprises where it was the least amount of time to get it built for the least amount of cost not looking at what the cost of use was actually going to be. You know, I, I'm a performance tuner guy, so most of the time I get brought in, it's like, if we can cut the time it takes to fill this form in half, it's this many thousands of dollars in labor we get back. But it doesn't seem like people do that very often. I think they might go in with the intention of doing that. So they're like, let's simplify, simplify, simplify. But we're also driven by others around us who go, but, but we need just this one thing. I can't make this sale unless we add this one feature in. And the problem is, is you get lots of opinions coming in saying, just add that one more thing. And, and I think Robert actually, in the d design of Erlang, saw that attempted often and fought it. I don't know how many people actually know the story of Erlang. I heard it the first time from you like two days ago. And sir, just <laughs> by the way, panel was basically inspired by that conversation. Could you okay. tell us all about how you got to create Erlang? Okay, so um, we, we were working in Ericsson. In, they had a small computer science lab. And we were generally looking at new technology we thought might be helpful for Ericsson. And one of the things we were looking at is as if we could program a telecom switch, telecoms applications, how would we like to do it? Um, that started, got, us, got us started thinking about what type of application this is. And we set out to solve the problem. This is, an 80. This is late 86, 87, 88, somewhere around there. Yeah. It, it, it didn't sort of start at one point, it grew. And our goal was to solve the problem. H how do we program these types of applications, um, basically from any start? And that's what ended up being Allen. But then we also we had a very clear, um, very clear goal, and also a very clear set of factors which we could say what was useful and what wasn't useful. 
in your experience at that point, were you a telco engineer primarily? What did no. you know? About telco, quite limited. Okay, so not a necessarily a domain expert. No, def- you're inventing def- a language here. Well, definitely not a domain expert. Uh, we had well, one of the guys in the initial group, Mike Williams. He was quite a lot a domain expert. Mm-hmm. We also had contact with other groups inside Ericsson who were definitely domain experts, mm-hmm. and give us feedback on what we were doing. Was that useful to solve the problem or not? And the, and the main problem here was massive concurrency. Massive concurrency, um, fault tolerance. Right. The, the system Can't go must, down. The system must not go down. Whatever happens, the system must not go down. That that would cost Ericsson large amounts of money. Mm-hmm. Co- concurrency, yes, and a few other things as well too. So we had a very specific target, and that meant we could focus on the target and, in that sense, not worry about getting other features in. Because we would say yes, we, we someone came up with a feature, we'd say, would this help us solve the problem? Yes, we put it in. No, we just wouldn't take it. And Joe Armstrong also talked about, you guys had a lot of science research papers or computing science papers at the time that you were looking at. That, from what I can understand, Joe, Joe was mentioning was, I had a big bunch of papers about implementing various virtual machines. Oh, okay. Of different languages and things like this we were looking at as well to, to do that, um, which then went into when we were building our first, first proper system. So, and I sort of appreciate the dynamic of, you looked at the science that was available at the time yeah. to solve a serious engineering problem. Yeah, yeah we, were, we were from the engineering side, and we also found that one of the reasons we implemented a new language was we found an, didn't find another language which solved the problem. Mm-hmm. And this was not just languages, well, it's part of the system as well. How, how, it's not just a language problem, it's, a, it's a, how you design a system to do this as well. Well, and people have told, talked to us before about Erlang and said, it's it's its own OS as yeah. well as a language. Yeah. Like it's a completely yeah. self-contained system. Fault for fault tolerance. So it's you for, to it's own for fault. Everything? Yeah, it's for fault yeah. tolerance. You need to keep track of things. You need certain no dependencies. Um, on. Yeah, you need no dependencies. You need isolation, strict isolation within inside the system and things right. like this. And suddenly, you're thinking OS. I mean, how, how do you do it? That pro- how do you do it in OS? You have processes. Yeah. An OS process can quite happily crash without just destroying things by other things. Right. So you take that same idea and put it down and you have processes. Yeah. You build that. So you're at a separate level in the CPU, a different ring or whatever yeah. they call those? Yeah. yeah. We're, we're at a different level, but it's very OS-like. And yeah. this evolved because this is what we thought was the best way of solving the problem. Yeah. When did Erlang first ship? Um, I think the first product... Based on it, will start around '94. Okay, that was internal Ericsson. Right, and, this, and in the end, this was you were building it for Ericsson for yeah. Ericsson to use in their appliances yeah. they sold to yeah. the telcos. Yeah, yeah. So this definitely Erlang isn't something that was ever a product that was sold. No, as a, no as it, a, it's still not a product. I mean, yeah. that you can go to Ericsson, you can get it, you can download yeah. it. It's, it's open source and supported, but it's not a product as such. So that makes a difference, do you think, that when a when a when a when a piece of software doesn't have a product that needs to be sold? You think that makes a big difference in terms of the, the why people write it, you know, yeah. for the yeah, w- w- yeah. As I said, we were trying to solve the problem. Also, it's personal satisfaction. I mean, it's very nice to write something which you which you feel for, which you like, and then you find yeah. someone's actually using it. I bet you had that yeah, experience. Well, Steve. I find this Erlang story fascinating because I'm just trying to imagine what the atmosphere was like in the rooms back in the you know in the offices back in the day when you were um, first designing this. Like, did you just think? Oh, where engineers would just do whatever it takes to solve the problem, or did you have this in mind that you were creating some, uh, you know, vast new thing? Because the level of ambition seems to be immense, but you're making it sound as if it was just a step-by-step process. It was. It was a step. We, we were after the problem. I mean, 
things other people started using it for later we hadn't imagined. Okay, so that's that that someone else dreamed that up, so doing things for it. I mean, some initial things were people st um, started writing a web server for it. Yeah, and that was something for me completely foreign. I I've never had the ambition to write a language. I don't feel like I've ever been in a place where I looked at a problem and went, clearly the languages we're using right now are wrong, like that. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to say anything bad about it because you know clearly you guys were right like we a few weeks ago brian uh, brian hunter we did a show with him and he talked about doing the architectural review on a system as an oo guy and there was this one service that had no problems so few problems like zero problems that there, none of the team even showed up to the review and that piece was written in erlang and his right away was a red flag that nobody's nobody knows anything about this. The guys haven't shown up for this. It's got no problems. So clearly it has lots of problems. He's not talking about it. And as he actually drilled in, he said, it really had no problems. And then he didn't know what to do. Like, that's kind of baffling. And it, <laughs> you know, there's no question you can build a highly concurrent fault tolerant system in other languages. It can be done. It's just it, yeah, it's not. It's not impossible. There, I mean, the, the base system's written in C. So you could say, yeah, you could write this in C. That's not that's not the, not the problem of what you can and what you can't do. It's it's having a tool or a system or something which is suitable for doing that type of thing. Right? That that's what Erlang is for. So I'm, I want to bring this back to you know the motivation for writing software. And I think when I think about this, I'm thinking about C Sharp, right? Microsoft. So obviously a company that has to walk that line between product and value to developers, value to their customers, and you know C Sharp. Like open source, right? It gets it gets to a point where features added, you know, becomes there's some there's only so many more things we can do to this language, you know, before we call it done. And what are we doing? Are we serving a product or are we serving our our customers? Uh, what's the best thing to do at this point? You know, with this line, they decided, okay, there it is. So um, I mean, do how do we? Think about that as it applies to the software that we're working on, you know, you guys. How does that, uh, and, and you, the panelists, yourself, I mean, how does, a, 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 how, how does that motivate you in terms of, you know, the, the software that you're, that you're indeed writing? Uh, I think one of the key differences is when, when we develop software for a market or a customer, there is a clear disconnect between what we write versus who is using it. And and when that happens, that becomes a job we fulfill. But the best software, in my opinion, that ever gets written is the one you're going to use. And when you're using a software that you're building, your perspective on the software you're building is extremely different. Uh, the other situation also is when the economics plays a role. When you're going to pay for the software you're building, that makes a very big difference than when somebody pays you to build the software. And then those are the two things I've clearly seen in my own experience is I've built software for my customers. I've built software for my own purpose where my customers directly will use it. And I've been getting money from people to build software. I paid out of my own pocket to build software. And I can see a clear difference between the two. When you're, when you're building something that you're going to use, you tend to take a lot more precautionary steps. You believe in test-driven development. You believe in investing into quality so it doesn't come and bite you back later on in time. Those things make a big difference when you are going to be hurt the most than somebody else who's going to come and maintain it. Same way with products you are building for your own use to, to solve your itch rather than somebody else's itch. 
I think makes a huge difference in in how we approach building software. I my my point of view is that it you can build software for others and be thoughtful of their needs. So you can actually put them first and actually build really great software. The the challenge is understanding that their needs are sometimes they think they're bigger than they really are and in fact they have a limited set of things that they need you to do right now. And you really need to go after the most painful things. When you're building for yourself, what you tend to do is you tend to go straight at the problem. All right. And then once you've, you've solved that problem, you move on from it. The problem of when you're building for others is you think, well, I'll just keep adding because clearly they have this other problem too. So I'll bundle it into that main piece of software and then I'll solve another problem in that piece of software. And that's when you get these, these pieces of so- this software that starts to get unwieldy that, that nobody knows how it runs. Well, and I can see built. you fall into this trap with DN simple. Absolutely. You, yeah. you can get more customers by adding more features. There's always going to be a, you're always going to get an email from someone say, I'd love to use your site, but it doesn't do X. And we fell into that trap several times along the way. And then realizing when very few people are actually using something, and that's one of the key things. If you have a piece of software and you actually know how your customers are using it, it helps to say, okay, we can pull that out. Somebody's going to be angry. The other thing you have to realize is that no matter what you do, whether you add something or you remove something or whatever, someone out there is always going to be angry at you. And you have to be willing to accept that. Well, you can also, you know, there's a certain amount of stuff you can have in there and hide, right? It doesn't have to be always, just because you have a feature doesn't mean it's going to be detrimental to the product. Sure. There are actually features that one of the things we have is feature flags. And there are things that we can do that we don't even tell anybody about normally. And we'll flip that on for those few people that, that do need it. Now, the downside there is that it does add complexity to the system. You know, any feature that is used by a small group, you have to constantly be asking yourself, it does this really benefit everyone? And if I take it away, what is the what am I going to lose? What which customers are going to walk away from our product? And unfortunately, a lot of the stuff we use when I look at uh, you know the software I use on my Mac or this the, the stuff I use on my iPhone, the, there's a lot of software that I stop using because it just becomes too hard to use. That too much gets thrown into it, and the stuff that I can come back to every time solves a very simple problem, and it and it doesn't go beyond that. But you do battle the thing that customers don't necessarily know what they want. Like, I don't think any customer ever asked you for exactly what you built here. No, they usually express it as some sort of frustration. Right. Like, oh, this really is unfortunate or this really sucks is what they usually say. Um, and then we look at that. And the more people that say it, you start to get this view of it. Actually, 37 Signals wrote about that a long time ago. The fact that they don't keep a feature list of things that people have asked for. Instead, they just pay attention to the most common things that sort of bubble up. And if it keeps coming up over and over and over again, then there's probably enough people that need it that there's a benefit to adding it to the system. Steve, did Knockout come out of your desire to have a simpler way to, to do web development? Or? Yeah, totally. Yeah, so um, the project started about 2010. And if you can cash your minds back to the, the state of web development then, it was... Um, uh, basically do jQuery. Like that was the, the start right. and the end of web development at that time. And that was cool, but it was kind of ignoring uh, a lot of the bigger lessons that have been learned in the software world for decades, like principles that have been around since the 70s, like model view separation. We were just not doing that and yeah. it was rubbish. So yeah, I, I wanted to advance the state of the art uh, in doing that. And so I suppose that was definitely one of the, the key motivations in that. Um, and since then, with it being an open source project, it's... Did you uh, start out as an open source project? Oh, yeah, that was the intent. Like, yeah. I love the story that Erlang, you know, started yeah. as an internal project, but yeah. eventually became open source. But you started saying, this is something I'm planning to give away and have other contributors for. Yeah, very much so, yeah. But even by 2010, GitHub was having an enormous impact on sure. the industry. And it's kind of a default state for all projects to start as open source 
like, okay, that's obviously wrong, but all sort of external public facing sure. projects, not internal corporate projects. Did you have a clear picture of the, what you were going to do with Knockout or was it an exploratory thing that's evolved into to this magic binding version? <laughs> it started out pretty simple. It was just model view separation right. and the ability to do declarative binding. So it was pretty simple. And, you know, the way it's evolved since then, it's faced a lot of the same pressures that Anthony has just described. Mm -hmm. Although in the open source world, I suppose, there are, there are some pressures that we don't face in open source and some extra ones that we do. Like, yeah. Obviously, there are not paying customers, so someone can't come along and threaten to like Withhold kill money. your budget. From, right, yeah. like, um, but at the same time, like what is the currency that drives open source? It's, it's something like a combination of attention that it's mm. getting from the world. You want more of that. And also, it's, a, it's an element of, to use a very abstract term, the self-actualization of the people who are operating it you know the desire to be significant and to have an impact on the world so as a person running that project i'm balancing my own wish to to do something significant with uh, the need to just solve the problems that people are bringing but up it is an open source project in github so if i decided that it needed a certain feature i could simply pull a copy make changes push it to you yeah, and then what if I ignore it for six months? Well, that's when, the issue. Isn't right. it? Now that some someone's done real work, <laughs> yeah. presumably they're even using yeah. that maybe is taking your project in a direction you didn't want to go in. Yeah, that's right. But that's and an interesting project. Projects, projects are often judged on their contributions now. Yep. So uh, people will go and they'll look at your recent contribution history. And if there hasn't been a change in a few months, they might go, oh, well, clearly this project's dead. <laughs> yeah. And they move on and they fork it and do something else. So they go find something else. So they start a brand new project. And that's the same risk that, I mean, that is is the problem, the challenge that any open source project faces is how do you avoid continuing to add features just to get the contribution graph continuing yep. to stay going? And, and the answer is you improve the internals as well. Not only do you add, but you take away. You, there's all kinds of things that you can do with the project. So same, same challenges. Are you though. still getting steady contributions to Knockout? Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, we way more than we can deal with, for sure. So it's constantly a, uh, the drive to encourage people to make plugins rather than try mm. and but, you know, the people contributing, they want to actualize themselves as well. They want their code to be in the core that gets well, used what by what a rejection everyone, so. to contribute some code you think is really great and have this great Steve Sanders and you go, mm, nope. Yeah. <laughs> it's tough. <laughs> or yeah. just say nothing. Right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes. yes. Uh, Maybe a worse response to ignore people. I, I don't know. But um, but yeah. try and be political. Then be you friendly. The, yeah. Then you have the problem of being too, too good at, at the start, right? Hey, your your hey, thing is just right, so there's, yeah. no, there's no need to add stuff for it. Yeah, that so. would be a good response. Yeah. No, it's already perfect. Close yeah. as already perfect. Hey, Richard. Yes, sir. You know what time it is? Uh, must be that happy time again. Time to get back to humor, the er language. Oh, no. And knock out a simple joke. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Written in five minutes flat. <laughs> Thank you. That's Thank you. awesome. Keep your day job, frankly. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's time to give away a D-Experience subscription from Developer Express to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before I tell you who won today, let's talk about DevExpress Universal. Become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. And you can thank Mark Miller for most of that stuff. Nice. He's the uh, guy, little Pac-Man guy in the cape there. With the cape on. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Uh, all right, buddy. Who won? 
Today's winner actually was picked at random, like they all are. Yep. And he's actually from Oslo, Norway. That's awesome. I wonder if he's in the room. And his wife was here yesterday. Oh, no. But he That's did funny. not. He was not able to be okay. here. What's his name? His name is Aunaun Austerheim. Give him a Big hand. hand. Congratulations. And uh, he schooled me on the pronunciation of his uh, name. Did I? Did it sound normal? Norwegians? Nope. No, no, not, even close, no. <laughs> not even close. <laughs> not even close. All right. Well, anyway, uh, he just won the uh, D Experience subscription from Developer Express. And if you don't know what we're talking about here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .net Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. Every show we give away great stuff like this. And every December, we give away $5,000 U.S. Dollars worth of technology to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And we'd like to ask our guests, oh, this is going to be fun. Well, you know, everybody's been on the show before and done that question, except true. for Mr. Birding. That's true. Why don't we just put him on the hot seat? Why don't seat? we just ask Mr. Birding? So, <laughs> you know, if you had $5,000 to spend right now on technology, what oh. would you buy? doesn't have to be developer technology, of course. Yeah. Whatever your favorite stuff is. What can you run Erling on? No, you know, what about those little, uh, those little 64 core? Oh, the parallel, parallel boards? boards? The parallel. You can't, I don't think you can run Erling on it yet, oh, but yeah. that would definitely be interesting. That, that, that's really the next step up to looking to well, do so parallel you program. Could, you could make, make it run. Yeah, there you go. You could do it. Yeah, Robert, yeah, you yeah, could probably. Yeah, up. with a little effort, yeah. Yeah, the parallel would definitely be interesting. That yeah. Would, that, that'd be uh, something. Name of them. The, the 16-core one's $100, so you can get 50 of those. So that's <laughs> 800 cores at your disposal. Do you have a problem burning <laughs> in your mind right now? <laughs> <laughs> you just compute stuff at random. Yeah, so yeah. Let's do really big fractal equations. You didn't yeah. need that guest room anyway. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just put it up there. Yeah, that, that, the parallels would be definitely be an interesting side. Yeah, it's, they're, they're yeah. great gadgets. Yes. And, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think, um, however you look at it, we, we're going in that direction, right? Yep. Yeah, we are. Definitely. All the more reason we need to spend time with Erling, I suspect. Yeah, we, we can do it. We can do it. <laughs> absolutely. Um, yeah. Erling scales. That, that's as much we yes, know for sure. Yes, it scales. It absolutely. You, are you, so Erling is open source now. Do you take external contributions? Yeah. Okay. There, it's, it's on, well, GitHub, of course. Right. Um, there's a user called OTP, and it's under, it's under there. They, they do take contributions. They are pretty strict. On what they accept, so yeah. There's so this idea that at some point could you call Erlang done? Like it's it's got all the features it needs. Why would you add to it? Well, uh, it's slow. It's slow getting new features, new new types, and that's that's fine. Um, there are improvements in the implementation. There might be improvements in libraries, documentation, things like that. Mm -hmm. Does it run on an iPad? No. That's not our problem. That's kidding. not our fault. That's <laughs> not our fault. Right? I'm really kidding. I didn't yeah. expect it would. It, it could. I mean. Um, Capacity-wise, it would be no problem. I mean, is there a benefit to running a language like Erlang on an iPad? You mean apart from the coolness factor? Yeah, yeah. apart from the coolness factor. Um, probably not. I didn't think I don't, so. I don't, I don't, I don't think the type of thing you're doing with your iPad. Well, uh, I think with the origins of Erlang being telcos, like, it's a perfect service language. It is. Something yeah. not UI-centric, but you need to handle yeah. a lot of. Yeah. Simultaneous request it needs to really, really work. Like that's what it's for. It's it's uh, it's definitely service service yeah. side for it. Definitely that that's 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 the main goal for it. Anthony, we talked to you about uh, your about DN Simple, and you're using Go a lot, but you're also using Erlang. Yeah, we use both. We use Erlang for our name servers, which are our core service, and uh, we switched out 
about a, well finally switched out last year at the end of this December after a year and a half worth of development. Um, so it wasn't a simple thing to do, but the system is solid. Performance is really quite good, on par with the C++ systems that we had running before, which weren't ours, which were open source. It was great software, but we wanted more control over it. Um, but I like the I like both. I like in fact I like having access to lots of different languages so that I can pick and choose the thing that's appropriate for that problem at the time. And we use Ruby, we use Go, and we use Erlang. We use JavaScript for certain things. We may even use Haskell in the future. So, I mean, just pick and choose these things, put them together. And the beauty is, is because of the network, integrating them is actually pretty easy nowadays, relatively speaking, compared to how it might have been in the past. I don't know what's going to happen with this question, but would there ever come a time where you'd say, you know, there isn't anything more we can do with DN Simple? We're, we're, if we add any more to it, we're just, we're just, uh, you know, messing it up. Um, I, would be hard pressed to say that there will become a time where we can't do better. And it's not actually, it's not about adding more to it. It's about making the experience you have with it even better. There's still, uh, I, it drives me insane. Some of the terrible things that we do, and they're terrible in my point of view. Most people don't see them, but I see them. And, and I think, well, you know what? This interface is still too complicated or this, this, experience is complicated because we have some partner over here that we have to depend on and that partner has their own workflow and their workflow sucks and so there are all kinds of things i keep thinking that are optimizations it's kind of like optimizing uh, systems in the same way um replacing some low-level component i.e some partner with a better system for doing it i.e direct integration to make things faster and, and cleaner and streamlined and I love that stuff. I love it because it makes my customers happy. I love building stuff. So for me, that's that's really fun. And I feel good at the end of the day when I know that I've accomplished something. I think that's the motivating factors for not just software, but for doing anything creative. You come out of it feeling like you've done something productive and maybe you've made somebody's life a little bit better. And no real motivation to add new capabilities or new features for your customer base just to make the existing features work better i mean people ask all the time for yeah. certain things and i think it would be more how do we how do we broaden the appeal to customers if we've if we've made a if we appeal to a certain type of customers but others go oh, i'd really love to use dn simple but i can't we're back to that same problem again right right another well, classic one for me though. is you do do registration yeah but you don't do domain searching that's correct yeah. And we'll probably, we probably will never add that one. It's well, going to be really hard. Because it's been well done, yeah. too. Yeah, I mean, you can't solve every problem, right? Right. Uh, it keeps coming back to the same thing over and over again. You have to pick a particular problem to solve and go after that problem with a vengeance. And then that's okay. There's nothing that has to say that you have to solve all the problems. That just leads to crap, usually. You try to solve everything. Well, I feel like so much of our software industry right now is focused on when you're selling software, you need to sell it every year or 18 months. You need to put out a new version to get the customer to pay again. Is this actually a bad motivation? And I don't want to indict the whole industry here, but how did folks feel you know, about that? I mean, Because i got a pretty strong open source contingent on the panel here right now. I, I call this the molding colossus problem. And, and the reason for this is, I think the we as community contribute to this problem. Uh, like what Anthony said earlier, you go to a site, there's a wonderful, uh, you know, API library, what have you, and you go there, hey, somebody said this is really cool. Oh, wait a minute. The last time they updated it was 2010. Right. This cannot be good. And if the creator says, you know what, this solves exactly this problem, it's well done, and you can use it. No, I don't want to use it because the bits are not hot. Right. And, and I need to really have this warm. And, and the only way we are forced to make it warm is by adding features. And, and every feature you add, 
you're increasing complexity to it. Well, so, so a great example of this, if you really look at languages, uh, I am in deeply pain with language evolution. And the reason is, if, if a language once created, you, you got to know what the core capability of that language is. Right. And if you look at Erlang, what are its trends? If you look at Ruby, what are its trends? But if you look at languages like C++, C Sharp, and Java, they came to solve one problem, but they now want to solve every problem in the world. Mm -hmm. And if you look at C Sharp, for example, it's turned into a kitchen sink because you can do things in it in every single way possible. And a, a good language first has to define its boundaries. And if you want to add a certain feature because the world is changing, you got to clearly make, it's a hard decision, and you got to make a decision whether you got to remove features to add some more. Right. Or say, no, sorry, this is done. And if you really want those features, you got to switch over to this other language, which will be designed with these features. But when, when we want to design a language that does everything, you're going to end up with a kitchen sink. There's no other option. Is that what we call general purpose computing languages? Well, general purpose doesn't mean there are 70 ways to do things. Right. So, so that's where I think it's, it's a conflict we have to really think through because if, if Erlang tomorrow says, I'm going to do every possible solution out there, I don't think it'll stay as strong as it is today. Well, I think Erlang's, I'm not going to put words in your mouth here, Robert. If I could stay loyal to its calling, yeah. it happens to be that today's market really cares about that calling. Like Erlang's been doing just fine in the telco world for a long time, but right now it's like services are super important. And it doesn't surprise me that Erlang has grown in, in, in visibility a lot. But yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, you need to keep focus on what your language or your system is supposed to do and concentrate on that. Otherwise, it just gets messy. And we say from the Erlang side, yeah, Erlang is good for some things. It's not good for other things. Use another language for that. I mean, if you want to do numerical calculations, don't do it in Erlang. Not if you want to do serious numerical calculations. Mm -hmm. You could use Erlang to control it, but pick a language or a set of libraries or whatever which are clearly focused on that and use that. If you want to do other things, I mean, if you want to talk to a database, maybe you might have to talk to a database through another language. Do it. I mean, mm -hmm. fix it. SQL's a pretty good language to talk to databases, it turns out. For some of them, yeah. Yeah. For some of them, then yeah, talk SQL. Make a SQL interface, talk that and do that. And don't try and fit everything into one language. But everything can be done in JavaScript. Steve Sanderson. <laughs> <laughs> it is a fact. There is a law to that effect, yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of these challenges about the need to keep on rolling things forwards whilst also not wanting to constantly tip the cart over, can be addressed to some extent, but through modularity. You know, you, you can have a project that at its core is incredibly stable, and then it's got a ring around that of stuff that's maybe moving on a year-to-year -year basis, and then it's got a ring of stuff around that that's just experimental and is, is layering some extra features on it. And with um, with a JavaScript library, for instance, I think that's more or less the only thing you can do right now, because, you know, the technology landscape is moving so fast that, you, you've got to keep on adapting. You've got to keep on um, addressing the fact that browsers are changing how they execute code and they've got different capabilities. Um, you've got to react to that. But at the same time, uh, yeah, stability is really valuable. And there are some technologies where it would be fine to have uh, a product that was really old. Like if you started running a C compiler and then you just realized that your compiler was three years old, you wouldn't be upset by that. That would be fine. Yeah. But then if you look at a I don't know, a WebGL for iOS library, and it was three years old, you would freak out. It just depends on the, the technology. The maturity level of technology itself matters. How, perhaps also how, how you view this technology. I mean, from, from my point of view, I see Erlang as a tool. 
for, for, for building stuff, right? It's, it's, and if it's a good tool, fine, you've used it, it's not used something else. But uh, I don't see any need to, to, by default, improve the tool. I mean, it's like a hammer, right? Hammers look pretty much the same for the last, I don't know, a couple of hundred years at least. Because it's a, it's a generally good shape for it. Mm-hmm. There's really no, well. It works pretty well. There's really no need to make any major imp- changes in a hammer. So why? So it was invented in Norway too, by the way, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, don't know but it, I, think, I think it's the same thing with a tool, with a tool, with a programming language. If it's well suited for what it's doing, what, why? Maybe general purpose computing language is the mistake. Shouldn't we stick with specialty languages that, that are oh, they, good at one thing? They certainly do have their place. I mean, I love my C Sharp. It does so many great things yeah. so well. But it will do some things better than other things. Right? That's right. Yeah. And maybe I should use it for the things it's really good at and use something else for the other things. Right. And just find a nice way of interfacing them. Yeah, ideally the, the trick is finding, uh, hoping that the, the creators of the systems within which these languages operate care enough to leave them open so you can use other languages. Because what we don't like to be is, is to be stuck in an environment where the general purpose language is the only language that we can really effectively use because we're locked in. And that's one of, that's one of the reasons why I personally have stayed away from the JVM for quite some time. Yes, there are lots of languages that operate on the JVM, but there's also a lot more languages that don't operate on the JVM. And the parameters in which the JVM runs are, are not necessarily always what you want. And so there, uh, that's just an example that I like to say that I, I like, I like these loose, tiny little systems or smaller systems that can be plugged together. And, um, fortunately things are getting, you know, now that we run more and more on the, the server side in virtualization, uh, and we were talking about this before, the fact that distribution now of these systems is in, is going to be in lightweight containers, which means we can operate many of these things in a, in a heterogeneous environment. And that actually is going to become easier and easier. So I, I have an optimistic outlook on the future of computing and allowing us to broaden the languages that we can use and interrupt together. But there will be people that will fight that because it doesn't make for a great product. Doesn't locking you in is exactly what a lot of that's that makes a great product. When you can't leave, you are the captive audience. They were and this talking is about what before. we're talking about that that you know that tension between what makes a good product for sale and what makes a good product for the consumer. And well, uh, sometimes consumers want to be locked in as well. Like if okay, I wouldn't say people are locked to C sharp. That would not be a good yeah. message, probably. But one of the <laughs> key one of the things that people find really valuable about C-Sharp is that it does continue to evolve and bring in these new programming, well, not right. new, but, you know, whatever programming paradigm is in season sure. is, right. is added to it. And people feel confident that their investments are not going to be wasted there. And, I mean, that's there's good in that. There's also bad. Yeah, well, you're seeing it happen to JavaScript as well. I mean, JavaScript used to live in the browser only. Now there's Node. Mm. And you're seeing other instances where there's chunks mm. of JavaScript running different places. Because everybody's grooving on it. You know, the, uh, that's where the new software comes out for. Uh, we want to give people a chance to ask questions. So does anybody have a question for any one of the panelists or all of us? Uh, anybody? Raise your hand. Let's put it another way. Somebody ask a question. Yeah. Please. <laughs> got Anything. Huh? There's a question. Uh, okay. Hey. A question from the audience. What do you think about Swift? Anyone want to... A huge sigh of uh, relief, really, that I don't all those actually object- have to learn Objective C. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that's funny. I actually, I, I've used Objective C, and I didn't think the language was the problem, really. I thought that the barriers were the, the what tooling. Apple put in place to get the the software out there. Um, so I haven't, I've, I've been hearing great things already of Swift. I mean, in all of the week that it's or less that it's been out, it's already got a lot of people saying this is, it's got some neat stuff. Um, so uh, looking at the uh, uh, Lambda expression syntax of Objective-C, I was really put away uh, with, with the ceremony that it actually has. 
but but looking at swift at least from the syntactical expression point of view i think it's a lot lightweight than what i've seen in objective c so i'm willing to give it a chance to see how actually it feels but already it feels a lot better than objective c to at least to my eyes but to anthony's point it's not going to change the process of actually getting an app in the app store and sadly i think that's that's the worst part about developing anything for a walled garden is getting it into the garden right there are gates there in some of them, and they seem capricious in some cases. And arbitrary. Right. But, I mean, will Swift be available for other systems? Will it, will it, will it become a general-purpose language yeah. for other right. systems right now as well? it's very much a very, a very narrow vertical of a, of a language. That's a very interesting point, though, because it does use an LLVM backend, so... In principle. The, yeah, there's, there's got to be some possibility of that. Yeah, right? yeah. Whether it's strongly tied to some kind of runtime that's only available yeah. on iOS, I'm not. And would that so. actually make it better if it was, that it ran in more places? Well, if you can run it on Android as well, that would make for a pretty powerful... That, that seems to be where people like to be these days, you know? The, the Xamarin model is very popular. But yeah. I think it, 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 in one sense it might also um, be a be better showing of, of the quality of the language if you can use it in other places for other things as well, too. Yeah. Okay, you might run into the problem we've got the general purpose language try to try to write everything with, right. with one language, but, I mean, uh, it's just another way of looking at it. I, I, I haven't looked at it yet, to be honest, so I can't, I can't comment if it's good or bad or anything like this. I'm not going to say that. But. You know, a UI-centric language is an interesting problem. Right. You yeah. know, we, we've certainly talked about service-centric languages and yeah. data-centric languages, but a UI-centric language? I... That's out, outside my range of experience, yeah. so I'm yeah. not going to comment. But I, could you put XAML in that category? Yeah, it's well, it's kind of a markup, but it's yeah, but it's markup with code associated with sure. it. Like, and you wouldn't want to build a service with XAML. No, you wouldn't. Pretty sure about that. Well, if the audience doesn't have another question, I have a question for the panelists. Sure. Yeah. Can I ask a question? All right. So my question is this: Ever since the opening keynote on day one, this this has been driving me a little bit mad, like hard to sleep at night. And this question: What does programming look like in a one thumb world? Oh, right. jeez. Great question. Any panelists have any thoughts on that? Venkat's <laughs> <laughs> looking at him like he's got you two a, heads. You did a what? So you <laughs> want to program what? on your phone with one thumb while well, walking across the street. Well, when you look at the fact that, that, oh that so many people are now coming onto the internet and accessing things through a device that is, oh, that's their only device, and it's just going to get more prevalent, at some point we have to ask ourselves, what does the future of programming look like in that world? Could you simplify if this, then that down to one thumb on a screen? I don't know. Can you? Yeah, I think it's, you know, I, doesn't have to be huge programming. That's still programming of a form. It's just, you know, the programming we know today cannot be done with one thumb. It just Qu can't. But, but the question uh, also, even if a lot more people are getting a lot more devices where you can work with, with one thumb, are they going to be programming? I think they or will. You, or you're going to get, or you're, or you're going to get even more split between those who build the systems and those who use. Well, the if you don't, if we don't give them the tools, then well, they definitely yeah, won't it. be programming. But so, if we can think about the tools that somebody who only has that device might be able to use, and think of it in this terms, programming might not necessarily be so low level like right. what we do right now. It can't be if you're going to use. I a mean, thumb. there's there there has always been this vision of reusable components to be hooked together. Is there any way to get from where we are today to that point? Somebody's got a comment. Okay, Project Sparks for the Xbox. Apparently, you can program using your thumb. <laughs> well, you could. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, I've brought it up on the show before many times that I would like uh, 
something that I could walk up to and have a conversation with a computer about an app that I want to build and it would just build it. You know, like I would talk to an analyst, but instead I'm talking to a computer. And maybe there's some visual stuff on the screen. Maybe there isn't. But, uh, you know. So, but, I mean, whatever, whatever language that's going to be or, or system for programming, you're going to be providing a number of primitives to build with. Whether it's, whether it's a programming Templates. language, which is simple, or, yeah. or it's a template, or it's a thing. This, this, this little box does this, and this does that, so I can put them together. So, um, If you're going to go to the one-thumb version, then you're going to have, you have to have pretty high-level templates or systems yeah. to use right. to put so together. If, if you recall the keynote, there, there was the, also the discussion of using multiple devices together, that using the best of each of the devices. So let's say you, the two devices you have access to are... The, the the smartphone and then your television all right so now what is that how does that open things up because you can actually do you can see uh, a, a much bigger picture with the television you can also see finer details by zooming in uh, that you can't do on the phone but the two of them might be able to play together my point being that since day one this has just been bothering me yeah and i, I think it's something that, that we have to ask ourselves is like what does this look like um, in this future, there, there was even a talk yesterday about the the indie phone. I don't know if anybody saw that talk, but if the if something like the indie phone is successful and this is an open device on an open OS, where's its open programming environment, right? So, uh, just I think to me this is like a fascinating thing and, and uh, worth looking at. Well, I mean, you have Lego. If you're running the, the Mindstorms there, you, you have a more graphical interface for programming the system, which in pr probably in principle could be made one-thumb programming. But th there again, you're pr providing a, a, um, a specific set of features which you can allow to combine. Well, the majority of the... I'm, I believe that the majority of problems that people face tend to fall within a fairly limited category. Um, it's essentially I want to get some information, do something with it, and then make something happen, right? So... That's, that's what it boils down to for the majority of our problems. And, and now it's just focusing on the details of what that means. And I think we're going to have to leave it at that. So let's give a big round of applause to our panelists. <laughs> we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks! .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a dog.